Welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, and with me, as always, is Ellie Jacobs, on whom the Cleveland Browns have already given up as their quarterback of the future. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. And I was just so close to being able to be the linchpin that was going to propel Cleveland Browns into the future the, the future Super Bowl victories. Uh, particularly, I'd like to thank you for hanging out with a globalist. Um, and as always, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and urge everyone to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Uh, ratings and the subscriptions are very important to us. We care for them more than we care for, I was going to say beer, but I'm not sure that that's true. But if you do subscribe and rate us, we will buy you a beer. Um, and please follow us. On- <laughs> then we're also not sure that's true either. <laughs> <laughs> and please follow us on Twitter at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in Paisley. And speaking of Paisleys, uh, our good friend Dave Bro, known to those of you who send us emails with the subject line, Food for Thought, as David Brooks of the New York Times op-ed page, he's at it again. This week, he wrote quite the doozy titled, Understanding Student Mobbists. Uh, yes, you heard that correctly. He used the term mobbists and student in the same sentence. And, and understanding. Those are three things that David Brooks wrote. Yeah. yeah. And this is not the 1960s. It's important to note, um, these aren't like the students who led the Iranian revolution or even the students who shut down multiple campuses uh, during the uh, draft riots in the 1960s. These are just college kids complaining loudly in between calculus 101 classes. But Frank here has a slightly more in-depth look and how this column, about how this column, more than any other recent Dave Bro disaster, really gets at the guts of one of our most important public safety awareness campaigns here on Taking Ship. And it is amongst our most important public safety awareness campaigns. Alt-centrism uh, yes. and, the, and, and the outbreak of it uh, in the last few weeks. But uh, with that, Frank, give us, your, give us your hottest, stinkingest take. Klaxon, klaxon, alt-centrism alert. Uh, yes, friends, uh, David Brooks, whom we have previously described as the absolute high priest of alt-centrism, uh, is, uh, has returned. This, the piece that he wrote, uh, Understanding Student Mobbists, is getting excoriated left, right, and center. It deserves, to, it, deserves to, uh, to, it deserves all of the criticism that it's getting. There's a lot to unpack there. I am not, we are not going to get into most of it because it's being covered elsewhere. Uh, it is reductive, absurd, artless, artless. Uh, but it also lays bare, and in, and in this, and importantly, and I think this is something that people lose sight of with David Brooks, remarkably poorly written. This is exactly it. Like I don't, I, I was going to say I don't mind being trolled, but I actually, it's better, more accurate to say I'm used to it. We are, after all, the owned, the trolled, and the furious. Uh, but patent I, pending, patent, yeah, But I do ask that we be trolled uh, with some degree of artistry. My God. Like, Oh, this language has so many wonderful words, and you can arrange them in so many beautiful orders, and yet this is what we get? All right, fine. Let's get back to the, the alt-centrism bit here. Because, again, this is the most important uh, public safety crisis of our day. If you want to read a good takedown of this and about what's happening with the New York Times opinion page more generally, Ben Mathis Lilly had a really good one on Slate uh, titled, Sweet Jesus, Will the Times Columnists Ever Write About Anything But the Intolerant Left Ever Again? Highly recommended. Uh, go and have a look at that. Uh, but but let's talk about alt-centrism here because in the midst of this, I think, largely bad faith um, attempt to, sympath- to attempt to perform sympathy with student protesters, 
David Brooks really lays out the core of alt-centrism, the, the kind of original sin of that particular political faith. Uh, and his, and it, it is uh, mistake theory, what he calls mistake theory. So I will now, uh, we'll just, we're going to go over a little bit of this, of this piece. Uh, I, I would say I recommend reading it. I suppose I do, uh, but primarily uh, just as a, as a window into the, the sort of the extremely milquetoast madness that lies at the heart of alt-centrism. So his idea is that understanding that his understanding, the understanding with which he was raised of public affairs and debates in the public sphere and policy and so forth uh, is informed by mistake theory. So, quote, mistake theorists believe that the world is complicated and most of our troubles are caused by error and incompetence, not by malice or evil intent, end quote. Now, that's his definition of mistake theory, and 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 there is that that would go by in other circles, uh, the axiom it's always cock up, it's never conspiracy, and and as a rule of living life and interpersonal interaction, I actually think there's 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 something there's something to that interpersonally, a lot of bizarre interactions and and a lot of the bad the, a lot of the unfortunate things that happen in human relationships are the result of misunderstandings, rather than ill intent. Where this thing begins to go a little bit awry, however, again, uh, quoting from Brooks, mistake theorists also believe that most social problems are hard and that obvious perfect solutions are scarce. Debate is essential. You bring different perspectives and expertise to the table. You reduce passion and increase learning. Basically, we're all physicians standing over a patient with a very complex condition, and we're trying to collectively figure out what to do, end quote. All right. So this is his view of public policy and why it's, you know, and, and, you know, and how policy should be made. We're all physical. We all want the same end. We all want the same thing. We're all trying to save this patient. We're all trying to get the same result. And our arguments, our debates are simply questions of how to do this. I, I tend to think of this as, for some reason, the, the model of the, the, ex, the, the, the way of thinking of this that works for me is we all wanted a certain outcome. And we haven't gotten that outcome. So something has gone wrong in the math. We all did the math. We all wanted it to add up to something. We didn't get where we wanted to. So now we have to go back and argue about the math and figure out whose math is right because we all want to get to the same result. And then he goes on, uh, and 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 Brooks then Brooks goes on to talk about the difference. He says today's students grew up in a different uh, in this different racial conversation. So he's now framing. Uh, a chain, a generational change in a view of policy problems uh, through uh, through the prism of race. Uh, he quotes a he quotes a really good piece by Nils Gilman in the American Interest. I would recommend. I do recommend earnestly that all of you read this piece. It's called "The Collapse of Racial Liberalism" by Nils Gilman in the American Interest. Do read it for its own merits. Uh, the irony of which is that David Brooke appears to have missed all of them. Uh, so he's, he's now. So Brooks is now framing it in the in the form of uh, of uh, looking at this through the prism of race. Progress is less about understanding and liking each other and more about smashing structures that others defend. Okay. So these students were raised with the idea that individual reason is downstream from group identity. And they are, and now we're, and now we're getting into the conflicting viewpoint, they are conflict theorists. Okay, this is Brooks now talking about the difference between what he sees as his generation and what he sees as the coming generation. They are conflict theorists. In the conflict theorist worldview, most public problems are caused not by errors or complexity, but by malice and oppression. There. 
that is the so in his view uh this is some sort of in his view and experience this is some sort of alien way of looking at problems in his view he is a mistake theorist most problems are the result of something having gone wrong in the math and we all want the same outcome so we all have to check the math uh and uh and conflict theory is we didn't get the we we got if we get to a result that we don't like it's because someone engineered it that way Right, that's the idea. There is there was malice or planning or thought that sometimes it is conspiracy and not cock up. Yeah. So, just to take a step back, mm-hmm. Frank, yeah. you know, it's important to note that you know our patented malice versus incompetence scale when it comes to the Trump administration is not necessarily track along these mistake versus um, the, the mistake theory concept. In in, in this case, it, it's he, Brooks is using it as a way to build towards um, alt centrism, essentially. Um, but, uh, you know, for, so people, for uh, dear listeners, as an example, um, Mitch McConnell, our good friend, the, the bluegrass turtle, uh, who very famously, uh, before Barack Obama even took the oath of office, I believe, said that his mission is to keep him to being a one-term president. That was not incompetence, friends. That was pure malice up and down. Exactly. And, you know, to, to, to maybe potentially jump the shark on Frank a little bit, um, you know, Joe Biden very famously talks about this um, a lesson he learned from Mike Mansfield when he was a freshman senator about Jesse Helms, who the arch conservative who was, you know, tearing apart, I believe it was a, a, a disabilities bill. And, uh, and he was complaining to Mansfield about that Helms was doing this and blah, 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 blah. And Mansfield kind of puffed on his pipe and looked at him and said, you know, he adopted a dis- that he, meaning Helms, adopted a disabled boy uh, last year, uh, to which uh, Mansfield said, you know, uh, and this is probably jumping Frank Shark a little bit, but uh, it, basically the idea of you can question somebody's uh, judgment, but not their motivation. Yeah, that's that. That's the Biden. Uh, that's the Biden formulation. And, and you're exactly right. And that is, that is essentially what. And and that idea, which again, if you have to work with people, is you know, uh, I mean, how how functional that is, even in a personally in a work context. If you're working with someone like Jesse Helms, is an interesting question. But but David Brooks elevates that, and old centrists elevate that to. Uh, to uh, to a matter of faith, right? Like this is received wisdom that we are all in this together, and that our dis- and that our debates and our in our disagreements can all be should must be handled civilly. It fetishizes civilized debate because that indicates because that shows that we're all on the same page here. And Biden, I think, would was probably a mistake theorist, uh, although he I don't know about that actually. He's but but I'll tell you, but he certainly worked with one. I would argue that Barack Obama was one of the kind of great mistake theorists of our time in the sense, not that he was necessarily personally a naive gentleman, but he arrived in Washington with the promise, with the, on the premise that we could work together to build a better country uh, by understanding that, you know, we will reach across the aisle, we will build the bipartisan consensus that we will govern like adults. And but by not vilifying each other, we can uh, overcome our differences of opinion and find some common ground. And of course, that viewpoint slammed immediately into Mitch McConnell. Right. And, and, and you know, the, I think part of the problem is, and I think this is something that you were about, you were about to get to. I, I think what happens is Joe Biden gave that example about one individual on a one-on-one basis. And it should be noted that Jesse, that Biden gave one of the, uh, gave one of the eulogies at Helms's uh, funeral um, when they, I guess, just dropped him down a shaft into hell. But uh, um, it doesn't work as a as a theoretical concept for governing. 
It works as a one-on-one. And as you just said, Frank, it's important for interpersonal relationships, particularly in a place like the Senate, particularly in anybody's individual workplaces or, you know, between two podcasting hosts, but it doesn't work when it becomes... I've always assumed that you were that you were acting out of pure malice and only malice, Ellie. Yeah. No. <laughs> you are incapable of mistakes, but you are capable of unimaginable evil. That is the assumption that has governed our relationship from the moment we were introduced, and are I will you, not hear otherwise. Are you calling me a globalist? <laughs> um, to, to, for those of you who haven't been paying attention to the news lately, globalist is a the current nice way to say Jew. It's, yeah, yeah, we're, uh, yeah but, but getting back to the point, there playing the classics, but yeah, they, yeah. when, when alt centrism elevates this idea of not questioning somebody's motivation, just questioning their judgment to a doctrine and a religion, that's where we run into problems. Yeah, it, this is exactly right. And so uh, Brooks has laid this thing out very ne- has, has laid this thing out very neatly. They have taken the idea that we should always assume that every we are on the same page and we all want the same things, and again have elevated it to be the have elevated to a governing principle. And the problem with and, and what this requires is that you look at present state of of race. This is something that Nils's piece gets into. This is something that even, I mean, Brooks, I cannot believe Brooks actually cites this piece on the collapse of what Gilman calls racial liberalism and then somehow completely misses the point. Uh, But you can't look at the state of criminal justice reform and policing in this country. It seems to me, you can't look at this with a candid mind and say, oh gosh, you know, we're we're all of us all on the same page uh, about wanting to get to a place where where communities of color in this country, particularly black communities and black folk, are extended the same dignity and privilege by police and the criminal justice system that white people are. And we we just can't get the policy right. We just keep fucking up the policy. The math just, for some reason, something keeps going wrong with our math, with our math. You just can't, it doesn't seem possible to candidly look at that problem without seeing that there are some people who want that unequal outcome, who are perfectly fine with and indeed happiest when, uh, when uh, people have, and this is Gilman's point, that they are now coming out of the shadows and talking openly about this, uh, when, that in their individual racist, but also that there are institutional, that there are structures and institutions that are racist, if not an intent, then an outcome, and that people defend them because they benefit from them. And on that structural point, toss, and then I think toss healthcare right in there. Toss healthcare right in there. Toss housing right in there. Uh, and, and on the point of, of big structures, we are now 40 years, 40 years into the decoupling of productivity and wages, which means we are making more in this country year on year uh, than, we, than we have been in any period. We have seen a, a, more, a higher year-on-year explosive growth in productivity than any point in human history. We are making more in this country than we ever have before, which means there ought to be more money going around. But what has happened is that money has been concentrated in the hands of a smaller, of a, of a, of a shrinking number of people. Smaller number of people are getting more. This is not a political position. This is the data. A smaller number of people are getting more and more money. This does not have to happen. It has not happened elsewhere. It has happened. And to look at this, if you are an alt-centrist, you would look at this and say, oh, I guess for 40 years we've gotten our math wrong. For 40 fucking years, presidential administration after presidential administration, congressional, uh, you know, Congress after Congress, 
we just can't get the math right and create a system where where the middle class where you know where where wages go up for middle class working and poor families and you know the super wealthy don't get quite as big a piece of the pie i guess we just i guess we're just not that good at math you could look at it that way or you could look at it like actually someone is guiding this principle and has spent an enormous amount of time money energy and and let's be on let's be fair to people like the Koch brothers uh, a huge amount of professional uh, planning and, and expenditure to keep it that way to make it to structure it in this way to look at just those two things, to look at criminal justice reform and policing in this country and the state of income inequality, and to see not malice, not conspiracy, but just but just well-meaning people who just keep fucking up over and over again, is to indulge in a degree of naivete that is unbecoming and 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 horrifying and disgusting and shouldn't be granted space anywhere, much less on the much you know less than a paper of national repute. But I would like to thank David Brooks for having written this piece because at least he has laid out the cent the central uh, flaw in the theory of alt centrism. So there has been an alt centrism outbreak in the form of this David Brooks piece. Uh, you know, please be advised, be aware. If you feel yourself coming down with the sen- with the feeling with uh, with the symptoms of alt centrism, you know, call us. Uh, you know, consult uh, consult a decent bottle of whiskey. Uh, lie down until that feeling goes away, uh, because it's going to be with us for a while yet, and we've all got to survive this outbreak together. And there you have it, folks. Uh, alt centrism is once again rampant. Um, even more so today, I believe Jeff Flake was giving some interviews saying that somebody needs to challenge Donald Trump. And obviously, uh, that's all. If, if only there, if only someone had a platform for it, if only there were, if it were possible. Yeah. Uh, we, we will spend some time on the, uh, may perhaps next week, even, uh, we'll spend some time talking about how the Republican party, uh, certainly no longer exists. Uh, the idea that the Republican party of the, the GOP and the way that it's looked at by folks at, um, uh, commentary or the weekly standard or national review uh, potentially never existed in the first place, certainly does not exist now and is not coming back. Uh, we, will, we will discuss that and more in coming weeks. So be sure to subscribe. Um, in the meantime, we wanted to turn, Frank, what was the other thing we wanted to talk about today? We wanted to talk, this is a, this is a good one. So in our continuing effort uh, to, uh, we hope elucidate, uh, but certainly entertain or at least appall uh, you, our listeners, the core of discovery on the uh, unfolding 2018 midterms. Uh, it's worth talking about a recent piece uh, proving that there is still some good work being done in the New York Times off the opinion pages, uh, a worthy piece called Obama's Missing Millions. Uh, so it is about uh, turnout and the ver- the way Democrats have attempted to appeal to differing audiences. Technically, I believe it, that was still on the, uh, <laughs> on the op-ed pages. It is. It is an opinion. It is. Yeah. No, you're right. It is an opinion page in the Sunday Review. That is correct. Okay, very good. Uh, so anyway, this is a good. This is a. This is a, a good maybe, substitute. Maybe the Sunday folks are not. Uh, they, they aren't affected by the uh, ethanol leak that yeah, they, the rest exactly. they managed to turn off the gas leak. Uh, so it is. A, it's a very good piece on. I mean, essentially, the difference. There's there's good analysis here. I highly recommend it. But the essential point is. It focuses on what it is, what it means for Democrats to appeal to so-called Obama-Trump switchers. These are people who voted for Obama in 2012 and uh, and and Donald Trump in 2016, and uh, Obama no voters, people who voted for Obama in 2012 and declined to vote in 20 at all in 2016. Uh, and and the difference between those two communities, the the characteristics of those voters, and what happens when you focus on one versus the other. Right. Um, we won't go through this piece in detail. As again, uh, we'll put it up on the, on our Twitter feed at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P, as in I don't know, paleo. 
Um, but the the nut graph where they basically used to jump off and, and dive into the details and the numbers is uh, their analysis shows that, quote, while 9% of Obama 2012 voters went for Mr. Trump in 2016, 7%, which is more than 4 million missing voters, just stayed home and 3% voted for a third party candidate. So if 9% of Obama 2012 voters voted for Mr. Trump and, and voted for Trump in 2016, 10% either voted for a third party or just stayed home. Uh, which is sort of astounding. And this goes to the point that, you know, something that we, that Frank and I have said repeatedly is that held again, held today, uh, Donald Trump would most likely win again. Um, and I think part of the problem is that there is a, I mean, it's a, it's a fallacy at this point, uh, by certain groups of Democrats, um, a large number of Democrats who think that people who voted for Trump were hoodwinked and they're going to change their mind. Uh, this belief that either the people who voted for Trump didn't know what they were getting or that they didn't, that they didn't want, want it being what he was and they didn't want him. Uh, the reality is that there are people who voted for Donald Trump because they're just Republicans and that's what they were going to do. There's some group of people who voted for Donald Trump because they really hated Hillary Clinton, although there's probably a big overlap between those first two groups. Then there's a third group that just really liked Donald Trump um, for you know all the reasons that we can mock him. Uh, there's a pe- group of people who re- were really attracted to that and attracted to the idea of blowing up the whole system, which they saw that he would, he thought they thought that he would do that whole draining of the swamp idea. Um, and as long as Democrats don't recognize that there are people out there like that or blame it, that it was Hillary's fault for running a bad campaign or Bernie's fault for hijacking Hillary's campaign or the Russians elected him or something else, nothing's going to change and Democrats will lose yet again. And this, um, Frank and I wanted to talk about this in the context of, um, you know, kind of the two ideas of grassroots organizing, um, uh, persuasion and just getting people out to vote. Um, and you have to give people a reason to get out to vote. Mm-hmm. That's right. And this is one of the things that we have found is, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, as the Texas primaries have shown, uh, there is considerable enthusiasm amongst Democrats to vote in elections. That is true. We expected that in Texas. We got it. Uh, that was very encouraging. Republicans also turned out in their, in their primaries as well. Like they, like there are a lot of, a lot of Republicans turn up in the Texas primaries, uh, to vote Republican. They are not just going to lie down and die. Right. Uh, so, you know, to put some numbers behind it, well, not the exact numbers, but the overall numbers, uh, Beto O'Rourke, who is a Congressman who, who's, um, who's challenging Ted Cruz for the Senate seat. Ted Cruz is obviously loathed by most of his party and just about every other human being on the face of the earth. Yet the combined total of Beto O'Rourke and his two challengers in the Democratic primary, the grand total of all those voters was still less than the grand total of the voters that Ted Cruz received in the Republican primary. And this runs into a problem that there are places where there are just more Republicans than there are Democrats. And I advise you to go back and listen to, I believe it was June of last year, Frank, where we took apart the, the Georgia 6th. Yeah, that's yeah. There are play, that's and this is some of this deals specifically with Texas. But the point that we, what, but what we are looking at, and again, yeah, there are play. There was, I think, that was that we were talking about the Georgia Six, and the theory was there are just more Republicans and Democrats, and there's not much you can really do about that. Now, as we saw in Alabama, it is possible to, it is possible for Republicans to be so unenthusiastic that you can eventually pick up an unexpected seat, but do not. But that is, of course, when you run the worst candidate for any office that has been run in recent memory. That sadly includes Donald Trump, actually. Well, up until Joe Arpaio walks up and says, hey, 
Yeah, this whole yeah, hold, yeah, hold my beer and watch this, right? So, turning to the different questions of of organizing, and I think this is exactly right. The way you met, if you are going for persuasion, this is where you've got people that are either undecided or may lean against you, but are willing to hear you out. Uh, you know, you're running a persuasion narrative. You're you are the communication that you do for the for that audience is designed to meet them where they are, to demonstrate some common ground, to bring them over to your side. There is also activation, and this is what Democrats obsess over during midterms because Democratic voters. This is a this is. I mean, it's. It, I was going to say it's a cliche. It is not a cliche. A cliche is is uh, to call something a cliche attacks its legitimacy. This is a trope, uh, but but there's a reason it's a trope that Democratic voters tend not to perform as well in midterms. And it, this is certainly true. So how you message to them is different than how you – is in theory different from how you message to uh, to persuasion voters. You make one appeal to persuasion voters who in this case would be a little more conservative. These would be your people who went from Obama to Trump. Uh, they have different policy interests, different political interests, different than uh, – uh, than people that you need to engage. The active, the voters that you would want to activate, the people who who didn't turn up in 2016 and are certainly at risk for not turning up in 2018, are people who are more progressive. They tend to share some. They tend to be in in their preferences for what government should and shouldn't do. They tend to look a lot more like. They tend to look a lot more like bog standard progressives. They just didn't feel motivated to vote in 16. And again, Trump. It's the idea that they would feel powerfully motivated to, to vote in 2018. I'm not entirely sure is true because this would imply that they that they decided not to vote because they didn't think Trump was bad in some way. But Trump has never hidden what he is. Uh, he's, I, I, right. And I think one of the other aspects that people sometimes lose sight of is media and the predictions game does play a role in this. Voting is not the easiest thing in the world. If you have kids and you know they're in school or they're not in school, you have to find a babysitter, you got to drive to the polling place, you got to wait online, you got to have identification whatever else it might be. And in a lot of states that process is made deliberately harder for to to encourage this effect of not showing up, which is a gigantic story and very very important unto itself. Yeah. It can sometimes distract us, forgive me for interrupting you, but can like, like that's that can sometimes voter suppression as it is accurately called is a national crisis in some respects. Uh, you know, voter suppression can it is true. It needs to be fought. It needs to be fought. The efforts to fight voter suppression need to be fun, need to be funded. They need to be fought well and professionally and hard as they often are. They are certainly the ACLU has been doing excellent work in this area. Uh, Let America Vote is Jason Kander's organization. It's out there doing good work on this stuff. These are really important. These are really important issues. It can be a little bit of a red herring when we turn away from the fact that a lot of voters, a lot of Democratic voters, choose not to vote because they choose not to vote, not because they've been suppressed. Right. It's, it's suppressed. They choose not to vote because it's too difficult. They choose not to vote because they don't think that their vote's going to matter because, you know, the predictions are Trump's going to lose by six billion points or that there's going to be a wave election and Democrats are obviously going to take back the House, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a, a, an aspect of that. I won't say that it provides a giant percentage of lack of votes, but it certainly plays a role. Yeah, and ask anyone who's ever lost a close election what a what a giant per, what what constitutes a giant percentage, uh, and you'll get some very differing uh, you get some very differing opinions. So the way that you would appeal to Obama Trump switchers uh, to Obama Trump voters, and the way you would appeal to Obama non voters could very well be different. There is a way, uh, and but it's much more, especially during a midterm year. It's a lot more personal to each candidate. Uh, you know there is a way to appeal to both, but that has that has a that is a difficult that can be a difficult thread to or a difficult needle to thread. It can be especially hard if you're just if you're campaigning only on policy 
because they just like different policy. I would, and by the way, I would strongly encourage no candidate ever to to campaign only on policy. Uh, that is the road to a very boring defeat. Uh, but there is there is a way to to formulate the motivation for your running, uh, for the story behind your candidacy, uh, the values behind your candidacy in a way that can appeal to both groups. If you pick one or the other, there's a good chance that you'll alienate both. And this piece kind of talk, or that you'll alienate one, or you might alienate both. There's a good chance that you'll only be able to to pick up one. And the concern being, if you target Obama-Trump voters, if you go for that persuasion group, not only that that universe is smaller than the Obama non Obama non-voters, you'll have a harder time peeling off the Obama-Trump voters. You may have a harder time peeling off the Obama-Trump voters. Uh, and uh, and you will you will actively turn off the Obama non-voters. There's no chance that they will turn up for you in 2018 if you run exactly at the Obama Trump voters. That's kind of the piece doesn't isn't quite that explicit, but it comes it walks right up to saying that. Uh, and this is a this is a challenge that Democrats can message nationally in midterm elections, but it's very but being the out of power party in a midterm election is very hard because you don't have a standard bearer. Right. Uh, and the standard bearers that we have are not standard bearers that uh, elicit motivation or excitement. And this this is and, and it's not really a, and, and they very and they very rare. It's very rare for uh, a party to have a to have congressional leadership that is a nat, that is a nationwide political asset during a midterm year. It's just not a role that they, they have been those those figures historically have been few and far between. It's not really roles that call for that or that allow for that. So this is. This is going to be the Democratic Party and through all of its committees is going to do the level best that it can to create a national, to create national messaging, to push that national messaging out in a way that will ideally persuade some Obama Trump voters and also motivate and activate Obama non-voters. We will talk again about the way that that has played out and the success of those efforts. Ultimately, it's going to be up. It's going to it's going to be up to the individual. the The choice about how to go for both, if they choose to, is going to have to be made by individual campaigns. If you want to go for both, it's going to have to be done. Almost, it's almost certainly going to be done at the individual level, the local level, and it's going to be it, it's it is going to be very hard to do so. But per this piece. If you're just going to have to dig in one, considering digging in the place that has more voters, and that's the Obama non-voters. Yeah, and to close out this conversation, and I think the episode, um, the current generic Democrat running for things uh, as a uh, veteran or as a veteran of the Obama administration, and they were um, ginned up to run because Trump was so abominable, and I'm going to change it, and I'm going to get to D.C., and I'm going to make it work better because... I saw how things worked under the Obama administration, or I saw how things worked in the military, and I can bring that same sort of doggedness to Capitol Hill. Um, that's not going to win. Yeah, it's, it's just not going to happen. It, if or if it does, you're putting the merit, you're putting the message out. You're you're seeding you're seeding an enormously important piece of ground to your opponent. Yeah, uh, if you simply run on a this is my biography. I saw Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump won, and I knew I had to do something. Most voters that that doesn't follow to most voters. No, you're going to ask why are you really doing this? Yeah. If you don't answer that question, they'll fill it in themselves, or someone will fill the fill in the answer for you. But sometimes even your own party, as uh, someone in in Texas recently learned. Um, but with that, uh, thank you all for joining us. We're going to keep this a little, uh, relatively shorter this week. Uh, we, we are working on getting a couple of really great guests, uh, lined up in the next couple of weeks. We're also toying around with some interesting, um, thematic episodes, I guess we'll call them. Um, but in the meantime, please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Uh, again, uh, free beer. If you get two of your friends to, uh, subscribe, 
Um, and free beer if you rate us. I don't really understand how we have so many v- listeners and so few ratings. So, you know, push the little button that gives us some stars. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship. And that's ship with a P as in plucky. Uh, yeah. And you can follow Frank at, at Frank Spring and me at Ellie Jacobs. Uh, and with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? So we're headed this week. Uh, this is going to be a hard one because we're headed to Bolivia. And the reason that we are headed to Bolivia is that Bolivians are protesting and demanding uh, access to the sea. Uh, Bolivia is a landlocked country. They lost their last uh, po- they lost their last means of direct access to the ocean uh, in the late 19th century uh, as a result of a, a, dis- a, a, a little difference of opinion with Chile, and they are uh, demanding access to this. They are demanding access to the sea again. So we may have to take some kind of airship, or we can just get as close as we can and then see if we can shout to them. Uh, which is, I think, always my my plan when I want to communicate with anyone. I eschew phones, get as close to them as I can, and then shout the rest of the distance and hope they can hear me. So they have unfurled, the Bolivians have unfurled uh, a huge uh, bluish Bolivian flag, blue Bolivian flag, uh, that is uh, that stretches across the land mass that they would like to see opened uh, as, a, as a sea channel. Uh, because it's very expensive. It's hard to export goods. It's hard to import goods if everything has to be done. If everything has to go through another country, uh, la- you know, landed somewhere else and trucked in or be flown elsewhere. I understand why they would want to do this. Bolivians want a route to the sea, and you know they know they you know far be it from me to uh, to advise them otherwise. Except, I do want to raise this point: you are a landlocked country that is far from the ocean. Consider this not a liability, but a potential strength. Do you really want to get to bring the ocean closer to you and yourself closer to it, or do you instead wish to laugh at the rest of us who are subject to the whims of this aquatic monstrosity, while you, uh, while you dry as a bone, uh, laugh at our misfortune or extend a helping hand uh, in times of need, while the rest of us are up to our eyeballs in in octopi and lobsters and sharks? I abjure you, good Bolivians. Think what you are doing. Do not demand further access to the sea. Do not bring it closer. Abjure the, uh, ignore the ocean. Refuse it. Nothing good lies therein, I fairly implore you. And so, friends, we are off now to get as close to Bolivia as possible and shout this sort of thing at them in the hopes that maybe we can encourage them to reconsider uh, allowing the vast marine monstrosity upon their own shores. Take care, everybody. (laughs) 